We are doing a, a preaching a little differently today. Normally, and every Sunday since I've been the senior pastor and preached here at Calvary, I've been behind the large podium. Um, but that one of the effects of that is it creates a little bit of distance. And I kind of thought that we already had enough of that. And so I decided to, to move a little bit closer to the camera this morning. The message this morning is called Confronting Evil like Jesus did. The passage is going to be Mark 14, 53 through 65. So I'd like to encourage you to go to that passage in your Bible, Mark 14, 53 to 65. If you cannot, however, I do believe it will be on the screen behind me. It's an odd thing to think about, uh, to, to, to get ready to talk about, I suppose, just the faith struggles that a pastor has. And I know that when I was younger, and I've shared this before, I went through a lot of time where I really wrestled with the, the questions about the, the Bible or, or things that looked like contradictions or questions about how, how the faith could make sense in light of certain questions that I had. There were times that my wrestling match was, was is God real or not real? That's not been the case for some time now. Now the, the, the question that most often keeps me awake at night, that I most often wrestle with, is the problem of evil. And the problem goes like this. If there is a good God, how could he permit so much suffering in the world? Now, I have answers for that, right? If you were to ask me or tell me that you were struggling in your faith with that question, I would have things to say to you about it. I would be able to, I hope, help you through that. But what I don't have is a perfect or complete answer because, to be perfectly honest, I don't think that there is one. For those of us that never really wrestle with this question, I think the reason for that is mostly that we've never really encountered evil. But when you endure tragedy or hardship, when you come face to face with something that is a result of the fallenness, sin, death, and evil in the world, it can be very difficult to figure out how a God that loves you would allow this to continue happening. Well, evil is what I want to talk about today, but more specifically, I want to talk about what God is doing about evil, what he has done about evil in the person of Jesus. And more than that, I want to talk about how we can confront evil like Jesus did. So to start with, I want to kind of give a, a definition of evil. And it's a long one. I'm going to read it twice. And, and if you get some of it, not all of it, um, I apologize. You can reach out to me and I will, uh, I will send it to you. But evil is a force of anti-creation. Evil is anti-creation. Evil is death and destruction brought together. It's death and destruction brought together. It's the force that seeks to ruin or corrupt or kill God's good creation. And most of all, us, the people made in his image. I'm going to say that again. Evil is a force of anti-creation. It's death and destruction brought together. It's the force that seeks to ruin corrupt and kill God's good creation, and most of all, us, the people made in his image. 
At the end of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 21, it's the second to last chapter in all of Scripture, there's this picture of, of how God or what God has done with evil. The Apostle John, as he's writing the book of Revelation, as he's coming upon the end, he writes in verse 1 of chapter 21, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Now that may not sound like a statement about evil, but I believe it absolutely is. You see, in the Old Testament especially, but there's hints in the New Testament as well, the sea represented chaos, destruction, and the Jews had come to see it as the, the source of evil. You can think of the floodwaters and the story of Noah. And of course, we know that God had a hand in that, but we see that element of destruction and chaos there. You can see the story of Jonah, how he was rescued from the sea by the whale, by the fish. But, but even clearer is a chapter in the, in the um, book of Daniel that was very popular in Jesus' day. It's Daniel chapter 7, where he describes these monsters that are coming up to, to make war on God's people. And they all come from the sea. The Jewish people in the time of Jesus had really come to see the, the, the waters, the sea, as a source or the presence of evil in the world. And so when John writes down in Revelation 21, there will be no longer any sea. It's this promise that one day God will completely, fully deal with and be rid of evil in his creation. So the Bible has this promise that God's going to deal with evil. And that promise is based entirely on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And in our story today, we see the beginning of Jesus' victory over the forces of evil. We're going to read now from Mark 14, verses 53 to 65. Mark 14, 53 to 65. They took Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests, the elders, and the teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days will build another not made with human hands. Yet even their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. 
The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists, and said, Prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. We see in this story a clear picture of one form of evil. In the gospel as a whole, we see several more, and we're going to talk about several of them today. But in this story, we see the kind of evil that comes from humans who have power and are corrupted by it. In the gospel as a whole, we have this background of Caesar. Right? We, we even in the word gospel see this happening because Tiberius Caesar, when he became Caesar, the, the word for the good news of his lordship, of his rule, was the gospel. They spread the good news of Tiberius to every part of the Roman kingdom. And so we can see how the, the gospel writers, the apostle Paul, as they, as they call this story about Jesus his gospel, this confrontation with the corrupt, oppressive, powerful human government. But then in this story, we see a picture of how the, the most advanced religious system that had ever been seen in the world, the, the seat, you could say, of religious power in a lot of ways, especially in this, with the story of the Old Testament, had become terribly corrupt. One of the problems that we have when we read this story is we're not struck by a contrast that I think that Mark meant for us to be. You see, for us, when we read about the high priest, nothing really strikes us. There's no deep chord of meaning for us. And the reason for that, in part, is because we prefer the New Testament, and I, I don't think that's a bad thing, but sometimes we neglect parts of the Old Testament that we should not, particularly the book of Leviticus. There was a message a few months ago preached here called We Are Priests that dives deeper into the idea of the high priest. And if you'd like to hear more, I'd encourage you to go back on the podcast and download and listen to that. But I do want to talk about a little bit of what the high priest was supposed to be. The high priest had this incredible role for the Jewish people. You see, with regards to the temple, his job was to go into the Holy of Holies to be present before God, to represent them before God. And so there were all kinds of things that he would, he would do or wear that kind of gave a picture of this role that he had. His clothing, each part of it, was very carefully selected and communicated something very important about who he was and what he was doing. Two pieces of his clothing I want to talk about. He had the, the high priest had this breastplate that he would wear. And on the breastplate were 12 precious gems. And each of those gems represented one of the tribes of Israel. And so as the high priest lived this holy life and engaged in these holy activities, especially in prayer, going before the Lord in the temple, he's bringing the 12 tribes of Israel with him through that symbolism of the breastplate. So the idea is that he represents the human beings who are part of God's people before the Lord. He represents them to him. 
But more than that, there was also a piece of clothing that he had that was behind the breastplate called the Urim and Thummim. Now, those show up a few times in scripture, and we don't know exactly what they were, but we do know that they were a tool God had given to his people to help them determine his will. Some people think they were like scrying bones, these, these small bones that you would throw and, and you would have a revelation of what God was trying to tell you. And some people thought they were stones and they would like light up one of them for yes and one of them for no when God was asked a question. We don't really know, but when they were put behind the breastplate of the high priest's clothing, that communicated something very specific that he also represented God's presence to the people. So when the high priest would come out from the temple and he would teach, when he would preach, when he would have these roles in the holidays and the festivals of the Jewish people, he represented two pieces of worship. He represented God's people as they came before him in hope and reverence and worship. And he also represented this God, this holy, loving God that cared for and took care of his people. The the high priest was a picture of humanity and God coming together. Now, he was never supposed to be human and God, but he was a, a picture pointing forward to the day when a human being would be fully human and also fully God. The high priest is supposed to be a picture of the incarnation of Jesus. He's supposed to represent this this idea of a loving people and a loving God coming together in one person. And we miss the shock and the irony of the one whom he's a symbol of standing before him in the court and receiving an unjust treatment and an unjust condemnation from him. This morbid, terrible irony of the one who created him, who empowered him way back in the Old Testament, now standing in the flesh before him and being condemned wrongly. It's this powerful scene that the early Christians would have read the Gospel of Mark or any of the others that describe this scene and been shocked by because this is not what the high priest is supposed to be. But the high priest had power. He had for some time and while none of the Jews were very happy with Roman rule, the high priest had power. The whole religious hierarchy of the Jewish people had accumulated this power. And it was based on some very specific ways of understanding and interpreting scripture and of living the life of the people of God. And so anyone and anything that threatened that was dangerous to them, was a threat to them. And I think that what we see so clearly here is the one who is supposed to be like Jesus showing himself to be so thoroughly different, less than what he was supposed to be. I want to go through the trial as it happened a little bit, and then I want to kind of point out to you how we see this corruption at work. The trial happens in the middle of the night. 
the high priest, he selects a group of people to, to form a council or a Sanhedrin that can hear the case of Jesus. Now, now this was a Sanhedrin in that it was a council, but it wasn't the full Sanhedrin we hear about in other places in Scripture. That, that, that council had 71 people, and it's just very unlikely that there were 71 people hearing the case of Jesus at night. This is the group that, that was contacted by the high priest to sort of be handpicked to be present that evening. Now, they began by looking for evidence against Jesus, but they're unable to find any because the witnesses keep disagreeing with each other. And through all of this, Jesus remains silent. I imagine that that must have been infuriating. Here is this, this man that is this threat to their power, and they are accusing him of things. These witnesses are disagreeing. It's not going the way that Caiaphas wants it to go. And this man, Jesus before him, stands there silently. God did not speak. Finally, Caiaphas asks Jesus, Are you the Messiah, the Son of God? Jesus says, yes. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. And then the high priest, he tears his clothes and he says, we don't need any more witnesses. And then everyone there condemns Jesus to death. This is a perfect picture of human corruption. I want to go through it a little bit to show you how. I mentioned that the trial happened in the middle of the night. There's Jewish law that's, that's kind of supposed to govern any kind of trial or, or accusation that could carry the death penalty among Jewish people. And some of the requirements for that are, are very clearly being ignored. One of those requirements is that any capital case is supposed to happen during the day. And it's supposed to happen during the day because evil deeds love darkness because it is so much easier to hide in the dark. And I think that Caiaphas reasoned that if this happened in the middle of the night, there were fewer people that were going to be able to put a stop to it or become aware of what they were doing. Also, instead of happening during the day in the temple where all 71 people would be, Caiaphas handpicked people that would vote the way that he wanted them to. More than that, any case that could result in someone's death was supposed to begin with the defense, not the prosecution. The passage is clear, not only that they didn't begin with the defense, they skipped it. No one was present, and Jesus was not allowed to speak in a way that could acquit him. More than that, the death penalty was only supposed to be pronounced after a night's sleep and never on the same day. I imagine that was for two reasons. One, if people were riled up and angry, having time to sleep on it, might cool their hearts and return them to their purpose there, which was to uphold the law of God. Instead, this gets rushed through because Caiaphas, having whipped them into a frenzy, having handpicked the people he wanted to be there, knew he could get a guilty announcement. The second reason I imagine that it's supposed to have a night's sleep is because if anything is shady about the procedures, 
that night would give time for that to come to light, and that did not happen. Lastly, another piece of corruption that we see here is that false witnesses are always supposed to be given the punishment of the one they were accusing. In other words, if you accuse someone of a crime that would result in their death falsely, you were to be put to death. And that makes sense, right? Because that would keep people from feeling free to come and just make things up that could result in someone losing their life. But that's exactly what we see here. We see this group of powerful men coming together to conserve their authority and power and using deceit, evil, sinful practices to condemn to death the one who spoke them into existence, the one who loved them enough that he was preparing to die for their sins. And they condemned him to death. We see in this picture very clearly the corruption that comes from human beings having too much power. There are other pictures of evil, though, that are present throughout the gospel. We see in the gospel the dark spiritual forces of evil. We've all heard the name Satan, the evil one, the fallen angel who tempts Jesus and even brings about his death through the temptation and betrayal of one of his apostles. He's in the background present a few times throughout Scripture, but always present in the background. And then also the other spiritual forces of evil we see are the shrieking demons that work or, or belong to the evil one, that shout at Jesus as he performs healings, or rush at him out of tombs, or throw people into fits and seizures whenever he is present. We see this battle happening between Jesus, God, and human in the flesh, the incarnation being present at the same time being attacked by these spiritual forces of evil. One note, there's, I'm surprised when so many people doubt that demons or the evil one are real. They'll believe in God, but not this other truth. And I think that's so interesting, because if we can admit that there is a God, a spiritual being, who has created and sustains everything that there is, if we can accept that, it seems like not a very big step at all to believe in the existence of the evil one. Not as an equal anti-force, not as someone else who is on equal footing with God, but a fallen creation who eventually will submit. Another form of evil we see throughout the gospel is death itself. You see, death is the ultimate denial of God's good creation. It's the ultimate anti-creation, right? And we see that death in the gospel brings its full weight to bear in the crucifixion of Jesus. And then lastly, there are more, but these are the four I wanted to draw out. Throughout the gospel and even in this story, we see a hint of it. We see evil in the hearts even of those closest to Jesus, even in those who belong to God. Peter is here and stays at a distance, and we all know what's coming as he gets ready to deny our Lord. We see his apostles, the apostles of Jesus, scatter after his death as fear 
controls them. And so these, these forces of evil, of human corruption, of the evil one, of death, of even those who are committed and belong to the Lord, all these pieces of evil come together. They rush upon Jesus, beginning here and continuing all the way through until Pilate has washed his hands of Jesus. He has been flogged. He is crucified. And he dies. When we say that he died for our sins, we have to remember that we are also one of these pieces of evil. Because that phrase He died for our sins, in part means he died because of them. It isn't only Peter and the apostles we can blame. You and I bear responsibility for the death of Jesus as well. And as these forces of evil come together, are drawn to Jesus, they cause his death. And I just imagine, I imagine the way these forces of evil responded to the death of Jesus. I imagine the evil one shouted in exultation and joy of what he was able to accomplish. I imagine that Pilate, who had this this awful feeling about what was happening that day, felt relief that it was over. I imagine that the high priest and those those of his cohorts that were present felt relief that this threat to their power was over. And the apostles of Jesus, I imagine, at least took solace in the fact they would not have to look him in the eye after they had betrayed him. But we know that that's not how the story ends. The story of Easter doesn't end with the cross. All these forces of evil had come upon Jesus and worked towards his death. And as he's in the grave, they find themselves unable to hold him. In the battle of evil versus the Son of God, the Son of God's victory is absolute. He overcomes sin and corruption, evil and death. And he comes back to life, making a way for all of us to also experience the overcoming of evil, of sin, and of death. Now, that doesn't mean that those forces are not still in the world. That doesn't mean they're not still active. What it does mean is that the victory has already been won. What the job of the the people of God is, is to implement or live out that victory. Now, there is some question about how should we confront evil like Jesus did. What does that look like? Well, there's some bad answers to it. The first bad answer is this, to say, it's not my fault. There's this desire in the human heart to blame other people for the situations we find ourselves in, for the situation we find the world in. It's very easy for us to see the world in terms of us versus them, and I'm one of the good guys, right? And we have to fight that temptation deep within our heart to look around at the problems in the world today, to look around at the problems in our communities, in our relationships, and just assume none of this is my fault. Instead, what we have to be willing to do is we have to be willing to take an honest 
look inside of ourselves and confront the evil we find in there. There's a quote that I love by a man named Alexander Solzhenitsyn, whom I recommend you, you looking up, and he wrote a, a very powerful book. I encourage to, you to read it. But his quote is this, the line between good and evil is never simply between us and them. The line between good and evil runs through each one of us. As Christians, we have to be willing to look in our own heart and confront the sin, the evil that we find there. So one bad answer to evil is it's not my fault. Also, another bad answer to evil is that it's all my fault. Some of us, we really wrestle with this issue of looking at the problems that we experience in our relationships and in our lives and assuming that we are so bad and wrong and twisted and evil that we are unlovable, that we cannot have a fellowship with our Lord, that we cannot really be loved by other people because secretly we know we're worse than everybody else around us. And while we would never think that of anyone else, and while we would never let anyone else speak that way about themselves, we struggle with this belief that everything is my fault. What Christians have to learn to do is to live in the tension of recognizing that there is evil in our hearts, but that we are created in the image of a God who loves and redeems us. We have value that we cannot lose. We cannot deface. We cannot give up. You matter. You are worth it. That is absolutely an important thing. We must remember. And as we have this time in our society where many of us are stuck in quarantine, and prone to having those thoughts that plague us the most. If you are someone who thinks ill of yourself, you need to hear this. You have value. You are important. Your life matters. You are loved. So somehow we've got to find a way to hold in tension. There is evil in my heart. And at the same time, I matter. Now, we know that, that the Gospels aren't written to give us either a promise that, that as, a, as this promise that just live your life, accept Jesus, and then when you die, you get to leave all of this behind, right? The evil just goes away because we go to heaven. That's, that's not the picture that we have in Scripture. While it's true that if we accept our Lord, Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we repent of our sins, when we die, we will go to be with him. That is not the point of the gospel. The gospel is also not this manual of how to reshape our world so the evil goes away completely. That is not within our power to do. The gospel is an event a thing that has happened in which God deals with evil through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And so how are Christians to confront evil? We're called to face it with a love that's willing to suffer. I'm going to give you five short pieces here of what this looks like. The first one is prayer. Christians are called to pray. 
Whenever we pray, the scriptures say that we step within the throne room of God, that we come before him. And when we pray for other people, we bring them along with us. Prayer is not just a thing that we do when we cannot do anything else. It is absolutely a part of the changing of our hearts and the work that God wants us to do in the world. First thing the Christian does in the face of evil is pray. The second part of this is holiness. And the third is compassion. And I mentioned those two together because what we tend to do in the church is gravitate towards holiness or gravitate towards compassion. And we really struggle with holding on to both. It's very easy for us to think we're supposed to live this way and people that don't live this way deserve judgment. And it's very easy for us to think we need to have compassion on everyone and it does not matter how anyone chooses to live. Christians have to hold on to both, that there is a picture of life that God wants us to strive for, a way that we can honor him with our choices in our life, that what we do matters. And at the same time, show compassion to those who think differently than we do, who struggle in ways that we don't. Knowing that if everyone knew our own faults deep in our heart, we would be no better, no different than anyone else around us. So the Christian must pray. They must hold on to holiness and compassion. The Christian must also have courage in the face of evil. There are so many things happening in our world today that need the church to be willing to speak up about. I was reading earlier today just to remind myself of some of this. There was... About a year ago, this study, I'm not going to name the denomination because it doesn't matter. We tend to think about, we tend to think about abuse, and we, we all remember or hear about the stories of the Catholic Church that this happens in, and it would be easy for us to assume that that's an over there thing. But studies show of a specific Protestant denomination that over 200 churches, there were 412 allegations that were credible of pastors abusing members of their church, or elders, or deacons, people in authority, being abusive. You see, it's, it's easy for Christians sometimes to look for the authority to trust and to just let them make the decisions and let them do the talking and just assume that our only job is to support them. Actually, as Christians, our job is to call out evil, corruption, and sin when we see it. We do it Gently, we do it meekly, we do it with love, but we absolutely need to have the courage to stand up and say, this is wrong. That's true if you see corruption happen in the church. It's true if you see corruption happen in the government. Christians need to be willing to say, no, that is unacceptable. And that takes courage. Sometimes it takes courage because we're afraid of what will happen. And sometimes it takes courage for us to look at the people we secretly agree with about things and still be willing to hold them to account when they act in a way that's evil. And lastly, forgiveness. The greatest weapon a Christian has in the face of evil is forgiveness. Forgiveness 
ha gets, a, gets a weird reputation sometimes because we tend to think that what forgiveness means is that when someone does wrong, I have to find a way to have a warm, fuzzy feeling about them and about what they've done. And that is absolutely not true. That's not what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is this willingness, this commitment to value that person in the way that you valued them before. Not to have the same kind of relationship, not that everything will look the same, but to see them as a valuable human being despite what they've done. It doesn't mean that you've given up any, any, any um, measures to take, any punishment that needs to happen. It doesn't, forgiveness of a person who commits a crime does not mean that you never call the police. That's not what it is. It's a commitment to retaining, to holding on to the value the other person has as an image bearer of God. Now, forgiveness is hard. It's easy when you don't really have anything to forgive. It's easy when you've never really encountered suffering at the hands of another person. But for those that have, it's hard. And sometimes it takes time. Forgiveness is not a thing that you should rush. It's certainly never a thing that you should look at someone who has suffered and say, well, you know what you need to do? You need to forgive. Judgmentally, as though we know what they're going through. Forgiveness is something that happens as the Spirit works in the human heart and helps them to understand that even though the person has done evil, that person is not the enemy. That person is a beloved creature of God. The enemy is evil. The enemy is death. And it is at work through them. Forgiveness can, can some people think that it's this, this looking away from evil, of pretending that evil did not happen or does not exist. And that's not it at all. Forgiveness is a willingness to name evil, to name a wrong that's been done. And to shame it. This should not have happened. Forgiveness is a willingness to say this occurred and it should not have and I forgive you. Because if you're not willing to name it, you actually aren't forgiving anything. You're pretending instead. Forgiveness is also a commitment to do everything in our power to hold on to that view that they are a person who matters. I may not enjoy them. I may not want to be with them. I may not want to be around them. I may not trust them. They are loved by God and matter. And forgiveness is a commitment that we will not let evil hold power over us. Just because a thing has been done to me, I will not let that rule my life. I will not let that determine my relationships with people. I will instead go and give it to the Lord to see the enemy as the enemy and people as beloved sons and daughters of his who are wrestling, corrupted, infected with sin. Forgiveness is a call we have from God and it has a powerful effect on the struggles we have. It is the best weapon against hate. 
It is the best weapon against anger. It is the best weapon that exists against evil. So my encouragement to you today, wherever you're at, as you think about what do we do in the face of wrong, what do we do in the face of evil, pray. Hold on to holiness and compassion. Have courage and be willing to speak truth even when it's hard. And forgive. And if you can do those things, you will be able to confront evil like Jesus did, who in his last hour said to his father, forgive them. My prayer is that all of us will be able to grab hold of this idea of confronting evil and put these practices to use. That our lives can be changed by following the example of our Lord. Please pray with me. Father God, we come before you thankful for blessings. We thank you for today. The opportunity for us to be together and to worship you together. Lord, we ask as we're living in just such a strange time and a difficult one for grace and mercy, for encouragement and empowerment by your spirit. And Lord, we ask specifically that you would prepare us to be ready to confront evil wherever we encounter it, be it in our own heart, in our relationships, or in the world around us, that you would use us as followers of your Son, to confront the evil that's still present in the world today. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.